This is the Storied Outdoors, a podcast somewhere between Lewis and Tolkien and Lewis and Clark, finding clarity in the stories we tell and the adventures that shape us. This essay is entitled Alabama Trout and Deeper Magic, written by Dr. Brian Gill and read for you by Brad Hill. There's certainly something in fishing that makes a man feel he's doing right. I can't explain it, but it's very pleasant. Norman McLean. One of the most heart-wrenching scenes in any children's book is when Aslan, the great lion, is slain by the white witch in C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. We watch the scene unfold as he willfully takes the place of Edmund Pevensey, one of the four children who slipped through the wardrobe into the magical land of Narnia, and the only one who was tricked by the white witch and then labeled a traitor for betraying her. I remember wanting to yell at the book in my hands as he simply lay there, not fighting back and knowing he had full power to defeat the evil mob by force. But he didn't. I closed the book as a tear fell from my eye as his mane was sheared like a prisoner who was guilty of some heinous crime. But the deep magic that covered the land had to be adhered to, and the punishment for treason was death. Although it wasn't Edmund's life that would be taken, the crime called for a life, and that life was Aslan's. But that wasn't the end of the story. It was the year 2022. The waterfalls spray cascading some 90 feet from Black Creek in Gadsden, Alabama, created a misty cloud beneath the bronze statue of Cherokee Princess Nakalula. The February air was cold, and there was rain in the forecast. Brad and I, along with his son, my son and daughter, were on a mission to catch the elusive Alabama trout. Well, elusive for us, anyway. While we were giving it our best shot and trying to make a fun memory with our kids, we were not optimistic that we would catch any trout. We'd tried and struck out a couple of times before. A year earlier, Brad and I had fished Black Creek with Stephen Rockers of Fly Fishing Alabama. We had planned on fishing the Cahaba since Stephen knew those waters well, but they were They were blown out due to torrential rains we had a day earlier. So, we drove north to find better water and decided to fish in Nakalula Falls Park. The air was cold that morning as Brad and Stephen and I descended into the canyon to fish. So cold that the mist from Nakalula Falls was freezing to the trees along the banks of the pool below creating a wintry wonderland that even the White Witch of Narnia would be envious of. But there was no Turkish delight in sight. The water was high and fast, and Brad and I got completely skunked. 
Stephen, as he always does, caught his fill of trout on a Paul Terry Jr.'s double-scooped special. And although he tried his hardest to help Brad and me catch our first Alabama trout, we struck out. Not to mention I slipped on a rock out of the canyon and snapped my five-weight rod into two pieces. It seemed like a series of unfortunate events for Brad and me. But if you've ever fished with Stephen, it's hard to stay frustrated as he is one of the most positive and optimistic people you'll ever meet on the water. Nevertheless, we ended up the day licking our wounds and eating a burger at a local brewery in Gadsden. So, not all was lost. I guess you could say in the words of my granddaddy, Brad and I just weren't holding our mouths right. In addition to Black Creek, there are trout in the Sipsy Fork of the Warrior River as well. Trout were introduced to Alabama on the Sipsy in the early 1970s. Although the water is typically too warm for these cold water fish in Alabama, they can survive in the tailwaters for a while, but they must be restocked regularly. A lot of people catch them on traditional tackle or even kernels of corn but I really want to catch one on the fly. In fact, I'd tried to catch Alabama trout three times before on the Sipsy below the dam, and yes, I still haven't caught a damn trout. Once, I went with Dr. Kent Michael, a brilliant instructor of psychology at Sanford University and an avid fly fisherman. We gave a valiant effort, but all we had to show for the day was a brim or two. Although that is the gateway drug, it was not the target species for that day. Catching brim and catching the smallest fish of the day is pretty much a guarantee when I'm fishing. I joke that if you want to feel better about your fishing abilities and the fish that you catch, just bring me along. You'll feel pretty good about yourself at the end of the day. One other time, Stephen and I floated the Sipsy and had a blast eating gas station fried chicken and hot sauce along with a couple of brews, but we didn't catch any trout. And finally, another time that Brad and I gave it a shot, we, we got a few sniffs from some stripes down below the dam, but let's be honest, they were most likely hybrids anyway. So when I say that we were not optimistic that we would catch any trout with three kids in tow and rain in the forecast, you can understand why. That's why, to my surprise, my son yelled, I've got one, Daddy. I was skeptical, to say the least, and at most certain he was hooked on a log. It was an interesting series of events that unfolded prior to my son's exclamation of a fish. You see, there was an elderly gentleman that looked identical to Pat Mordia, the actor who played Mr. Miyagi in the 1984 classic film The Karate Kid. Brad and I had been watching him absolutely slay the trout below the falls. One after another, he would haul in beautiful rainbow trout and release them back into the creek. It was not surprising to see him net yet another one of his many catches of the day. But we were somewhat confused when he waded downstream, stepped out of the water and brought the netted fish over to show the kids. At first, we just thought he was being kind, a kind soul that wanted the kids to at least see a trout in real life, since their dads were clearly not getting the job done. But then he released the fish right at the feet of my son, 
who was fishing a squirmy wormy with a hookless hopper as an indicator. Almost immediately, my son's calico Cahaba three-weight was bent in a shepherd's hook. He was yelling, I've got one, Daddy! I was standing on a nearby boulder with my daughter, trying to help her catch a trout of her own, when I saw that he had, in fact, hooked a trout, not a log. I made my way to him with my net. I was so proud of how well he fought the fish. He held the rod with his right hand and retrieved the line with his left, keeping the gathered line in between his fingers. (laughs) Impressive work for a seven-year-old. I netted the 15-inch rainbow trout, and as you can imagine, excitement and chaos ensued. The kids were elated, and rightfully so. To this day... I still don't know if the trout my son caught was the same one the kind old man released at his feet, or if the presence of that trout caused a different fish to get competitive for my son's bait, causing a feeding frenzy, or if it was just pure coincidence. All I know is that he caught a beautiful Alabama trout, and I caught an even better memory. The fact that my son caught an Alabama trout before me brought so much joy to my soul. It's hard to explain, but it reminded me of when my dad would get excited when I would catch a big fish. Growing up fishing in small ponds, dad would always put me in the best holes for the chance to catch the biggest fish. He would pass up good spots just so I could get a cast there first. And if I didn't catch one, he'd reverse the trolling motor and say, let's try that once again. As I got older, he would ask if I wanted to drive the trolling motor on the front of our 12-foot John boat. He felt it would give me an even better chance for a bigger fish if I sat in the front. I always refused. Sitting in the back was something I didn't want to let go of. I'd always done it that way, and it just seemed right for him to be at the helm and me sitting in the back. I always wondered why Dad would put me in the best position to catch fish and take the leftovers for himself. It wasn't until I had children of my own that the reason why became clear. Dad was a funny guy. He had lots of one-liners that usually got a rise out of folks. When someone would say, see you later, he would always reply, not if I see you first. Another one was when he would say, I love you more like it was some silly competition of sorts. When my sister and I would tell him, I love you, without fail, he would say, I love you more. For years, I just shrugged it off as he was just being funny. He was always saying witty one-liners. If you knew him, you knew when the next one was coming. He was predictable in that way. So saying, I love you more, was just another one of his one-liners that I expected from him. That was until I became a father. When my son was born, everything changed. When he was just an infant, I would just look at him and marvel at how innocent and precious he was as a human being. A beautiful creation that God knew even before he was in my wife's womb. I quickly understood what Dad was saying all those years. He really did love me more. That explained giving me the best fishing spots, the best seats at sporting events, the fact that he made sacrifices with his career that couldn't be explained 
any other way. It was all because he loved us more. It was very clear that there was no way for my son to love me more than I love him. It was impossible. And the same goes for my daughter. My children will never feel for me what I feel for them. And the sense of pride, protection, joy, hope, the love I possess for them. There's no way. It's not possible. A couple of years before dad passed away, I told him of my epiphany. About how he was right all those years and how there's no way I can love him more than he loves me. Because there's no way my kids can love me more than I love them. That's what I've been trying to tell you, he said. You just never listen to your old man. That time he really was joking. Fishing holes weren't the only sacrifices my dad made for his family. When my sister and I were young, dad worked construction at paper mills. And he was good at it, too. He was the youngest at the time to reach his position for International Paper Company. And as a result, they flew him all over the country and Canada to assist with shutdowns. While he was great at his job and soaring to the top of his field, he was always gone. Honestly, I don't remember much about my dad in the early years because he was always away from home so much. When I was four years old, dad took a job in Arkansas. We packed up our baggage and moved with him to Whitehall, Arkansas, a little town that might as well have been on the other side of the country from our hometown of East Bruton, Alabama. Trying to find some friendly faces, Mom started taking us to church, where she met some sweet friends. Soon after us moving there, the church had a tent revival. For those of you who don't know what a tent revival is, it's where the church sets up a big tent in the field and they bring out folding chairs and a sound system. There's usually some singing and accompanied by a traveling preacher who shares the gospel. I remember it well. We were sitting in the back right corner of the tent. The grass tickled my feet as they dangled in the folding chairs as my legs were not long enough to reach the ground. Mama was fanning herself with a cardboard fan that had a paint stirrer for a handle. I was listening to the preacher, and he said something about sacrifice and Jesus. His word stirred in my heart. When he invited people to go down front, I tugged on Mama's dress and said, I want to do that. I want to get saved. Mama was prudent and said we'd talk to the pastor afterwards. So we did, and I accepted Jesus as my Savior on the warm September night at the tent revival in Arkansas. I was so excited. I couldn't wait to tell my neighbors whom I'd been playing with throughout the year. But more so, I couldn't wait to tell my dad. You see, he wasn't there that night. He was just getting off his shift at the paper mill, and he missed the monumental event. My dad was working on the most important night of my life. Not long after the tent revival, my life changed forever. It was a Friday night. Mom and dad were at the dinner table, tears in their eyes. They were discussing something serious. 
They called my sister and me into the room and told us that dad had quit his job at the paper mill and that we were moving back to Alabama. We were shocked. We were excited. We couldn't be happier. We were going back home. Dad had realized that he was missing his children growing up and decided it was time to be a dad. We moved back to East Bruton for a few months, and then Dad became a part-time mailman in Eufaula, Alabama. A $50,000 pay cut from the construction job in Arkansas. His dreams of climbing the ladder of International Paper Company were over, but he had a job where he could be home with his children after work. He could play catch with his son in the backyard. He could help his daughter practice softball. He could take us fishing any time he wanted. Although the job was not glamorous, he had his family. It was a sacrifice that he'd made for us, and I grew up knowing my dad loved me more than his job and more than the pursuit of his career. When Dad got sick in 2015, he had moments of reflection where he would tell me things, new things I had not heard before. One day, while we were fixing the kitchen sink, he said, I never told you why I quit my job in Arkansas. I looked at him somewhat confused and said, Yeah, you did. I, th I thought it was so you could be with us more, so you could be home more. Yeah, but... I never told you what it was that made me make that decision, and I feel bad for even telling you now. He had my full attention as he began telling me a story, one I'd never heard before. I was getting home from my shift, and I pulled into the driveway. I was exhausted, but then I looked in the backyard. You were playing catch with your mom. I paused and watched for what seemed like an eternity before getting out. Then it occurred to me. I was on the edge of my seat waiting for what's next. What's the epiphany that he saw as I was playing catch? What was coming next? What earth-shattering awakening had happened as he watched me throwing a baseball? Was it how great I was throwing? Was it how much potential I had as an athlete? Did he notice that I was a child prodigy? That I needed the right coach? What, what was it? He continued. With my hands gripping the steering wheel tightly, I watched you and your mom playing catch. And then it occurred to me. My son throws like a girl. Really, Dad? That was your moment of clarity? I laughed and shook my head. I actually thought it was hilarious. But then he continued and then was more somber. Your mom was doing the best that she could because I was not there. You were just following her example. But that was not her role. She was standing in the gap trying to raise you kids all by herself and I was an absent father. It was then I realized I was the leader of hundreds of men, but I was not the leader of my own family. Thank God for moms who stand in the gap. Years later, long after I worked on that throwing motion, and years after my first experience with C.S. Lewis and Aslan and Narnia, 
I introduced my children to these wonderful books. As we came to that frightful scene and Aslan lay there bound by ropes and shaved and disgraced, my son looked up to me and said, Daddy, I don't like this. I don't want him to die. Trust me, buddy, I said. There's a happy ending. We just need to keep reading. As we read further, Lucy and Susan were tending to Aslan's lifeless body. As they started walking away, they heard a great noise and questioned whether or not it was more magic happening. More of the deep magic that had brought them so much pain. The same magic that had taken their beloved Aslan. The following is an excerpt from the book. Yes, said a great voice from behind their backs. It's more magic. They looked around. There, shining in the sunrise, larger than they had seen him before, shaking his mane, for it had apparently grown again, stood Aslan himself. Oh, Aslan, cried both children, staring up at him, almost as much frightened as they were glad. But what does it all mean, asked Susan, when they were somewhat calm. It means, said Aslan, that though the witch knew the deep magic, there is a magic deeper still, which she did not know. Her knowledge goes back only to the dawn of time. But if she could have looked further back, into the stillness and the darkness before time dawned, she would have read there a different incantation. She would have known that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backward. Sacrifice doesn't make sense on the surface. There's a deeper magic to it. The person making the sacrifice must love that which he is sacrificing for more than that which he is sacrificing. It's taken me a lifetime of reflecting on those two nights in Arkansas, a great lion and fishing with dad to more fully understand it. But having kids of my own now, it's becoming clearer and I'm better for it. As for my pursuit of the elusive Alabama trout, not long after my son caught his trout near the base of that waterfall that day, I hooked into a nice rainbow and let my daughter reel it in. I still can't say that I have caught an Alabama trout. My day will come, and I will catch one one day. But for now, I'm completely satisfied knowing that my children are catching the best fish and getting the best spots whether in a trout stream or on the banks of a pond or in the boat in the middle of a lake. And that's how it will stay until I'm gone. And one day, when they are older, when they listen to this essay, they will know that I did what I did. Sacrifices big and small were because I loved them. And better yet, they will see a reflection of God in my life and know that He loves them more. We can't thank you enough for taking time to listen to this episode. 
We really appreciate all the support that you guys have shown us and the kindness that you have uh, given us by joining us on this journey. If you haven't taken time yet to leave us a review in iTunes or a rating on Spotify, we would be incredibly blessed if you would take time to share your thoughts with us. And um, those reviews help people find our podcast. Those reviews help people hear these stories and share these stories with other folks. So please take, take some time to do that. And uh, it would be a huge blessing to us if you would do that. And uh, if you want uh, more information, you can also stop by the storiedoutdoors.com. Um, there's usually uh, photos to to go along with this essay, um, usually some additional content and links and um, more notes about each uh, about each episode. And it's really a great place to catch up on all things the storied outdoors. Uh, you can also sign up for our newsletter there. We won't, I promise, we won't bombard you with emails. I know how it is. There's always junk in the in the email box, but when you get one from us, know that it will be. Uh, it will be imported, and it will be once every now and then, and we will certainly respect your um, email inbox. But we would love it if you'd sign up for that newsletter. You'll get uh, insight on upcoming seasons and guests, and you'll get first dibs on any kind of merchandise that we decide to put out. So being a part of that uh, that newsletter would be pretty cool, and we would love it if you'd join us. And I think that's really it. Thanks for listening today. We, we hope, gosh, every time, our, our goal in this project is we hope these stories inspire you. We hope they encourage you, encourage you to write your stories, to share your adventures in the place that we love to call the story out.